0: This episode of Outlines contains discussions relating to suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. So as always, discretion is advised. Welcome to a special episode of the Outlines podcast, which is a collaboration between myself and Caprice, the writer and host of the Unseen podcast. If by some chance you haven't come across Unseen before, make sure to check the show out. She and I both have the same focus, unsolved murders and disappearances. And while we do sometimes overlap on cases, she also has plenty that I'm yet to get to. I'd highly recommend subscribing. For today, we're actually doing something a little different. We'll be telling you about two separate historic cases, and at the end, we'll be having a discussion about them and our thoughts on what happened. I hope you like the slight change of format, and I'll leave a link in the description if you want to head over and subscribe to Unseen when you're done listening. Today's episode begins in the small village of Sherfield English, not far from Romsey in Hampshire. Sherfield English is a village that doesn't really feel like a place at all. It's one of those locations where the roads are designed not for the village itself, but for those around it, most notably the market town of Romsey, and further down than that, the port city of Southampton. In fact, if you aren't looking for Sherfield English, you might miss it completely. I'd love to be able to tell you more about the village, and to have visited there myself, but for the first time since I started this podcast, I can't afford to get there. Despite this, I have spent a fair amount of time questioning Sherfield English residents via the local Facebook page and trawling through the area on Google Street View. I hope this doesn't impact the episode too much for anyone. If you're wondering what's happened to the new series, then this is a big part of why it's yet to be released. I'm going to try and bring you a few special episodes from a bit closer to home while I wait to be able to get back onto the road. So do stick with me. Let's get back now to Sherfield, English. In 2011, the population of the village was only 708 people. But we're going back to the 1950s, and in particular, Saturday the 4th of December, 1954. On that Saturday, 18-year-old Mary Elizabeth Woolley, who had been staying with her 24-year-old brother Raymond at his home on Castle Hill in Maidenhead, made the almost 70-mile journey back to the village to see her mother, Ida. She told her that she was spending the weekend with a female friend at Hayes in Middlesex, but that wasn't the case. Instead, what she had planned was far closer to home. Waiting for Mary as she left her parents' house was a 33-year-old man that she'd recently met in Maidenhead by the name of John Shaw, Together, she and John made their way to the village shop. It sold groceries and sweets, and was connected by an internal door to the home of its owners, Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Andrews. John was a freelance artist by trade, and had been complaining to Mary that he was short of money. Mary told him about the shop, and of Mr. Andrews, whose life savings she knew were kept somewhere on the premises, though she would later claim that what happened next was John's idea. The couple made their way inside the house through a bedroom window, but when they came to the door which separated the shop from the home, they found it locked. It was then, Mary later told her mother, that she began to think about Mr Andrews and how he would feel to come home and find all his life savings gone. John began to grow impatient, telling Mary to break it down, you little fool. But she couldn't, and told him, I can't go through with this. The couple argued, and John, incensed, drove away, leaving Mary in Sherfield English. Ashamed of her actions, she made her way to the local rectory to spend the night in the hospitality of the rector and his wife. The next day, the rector's wife, accompanied by Mary, called in on Ida Woolley. And she told her mother, I've been wicked and an awful fool, but I have met someone in Maidenhead and have been going about with him for six weeks now. When told the details of what had happened the previous day, Ida insisted that her daughter go to the police. Dutifully, she did as she was told. She was charged with breaking into the bungalow, and a date set for her to appear in court. It would be in nearby Romsey, four days from then, on Thursday, the 9th of December, 1954. But by then, Mary would be dead, and the man who accompanied her would have vanished off of the face of the earth, if indeed he'd ever even existed. I'm Jess Carter, and this is a special collaborative episode of the Outlines podcast. Woolley was born in April 1936 in Shardlow in Derbyshire. During her childhood her family, mother Ida, father Raymond and brother, also called Raymond, relocated to Hampshire where Ida was a schoolmistress and her father a master at a private school in Watford. By the age of 18 Mary had had a number of jobs including working as a clerk and a shop assistant before moving to Bath to work as a student nurse at a hospital there. Not long before her death, she left nursing during a period of what her mother later described as ill health. Following this, she moved temporarily into her brother's home in Maidenhead in the county of Berkshire. She seemed happy and gave no indication of financial or love life problems although Ida would tell the inquest that Mary was in debt to the tune of ten shillings after she'd put down a deposit on a suit. It was during her time in Maidenhead that she reportedly met John Shaw, who she kept a secret from her family. Not even her brother knew of his existence, and her brother would tell the inquest, Mary lived here for six weeks before her death, I've visited all my friends in the area since, but not one person has been able to tell me about Shaw. I showed Mary's photograph to other people, asking whether they ever saw her with the artist. They all said no. To her mother, Mary said that Shaw was about six feet tall, most unusual, attractive and fascinating. They met, she said, because he used to run a car around Maidenhead after mary died her mother who believed that john shaw was responsible for her daughter's death said that following the incident at the bungalow she had been concerned for mary's well-being saying i consider that her life might be in danger as she was the only one who was a witness as far as this man was concerned on monday the 6th of december 1954 Mary and Ida called by Raymond's home to collect Mary's things. Ida remembered that at around 4.30 that afternoon, her daughter said she would go downstairs to make a coffee, but she did not return. Becoming concerned, Ida went down to discover that the table was laid, though there was no sign of Mary, who her mother assumed had gone to the dairy to fetch milk. A short while later, as the 5.45 train from Waterloo to Reading made its way out of Earley, 11 miles from Raymond's house in Maidenhead, Mr. Dennis Harford, a passenger, thought that as the train passed under Church Road Bridge, he felt a bump, as if the carriage had gone over something on the line. On arrival at Reading, he told a station worker of this occurrence, and at around 7.50 p.m. that evening, PCD Walker and Sergeant Snowley went to the railway line on the Wokingham side of the track, and it was there that a handbag was discovered. Inside the handbag was a letter addressed to Mary's brother as Mr. R.J. Woolley, Esquire. The note read, Dear John, I am very sorry to have to tell you that I have got in serious trouble, and have to go to court on Thursday. Mummy is sending a cheque for two weeks' rent. I don't know when I shall see you again. Love, Mary On reading the note, despite its content, Raymond found that he could not say for sure that it was in his sister's handwriting. Also included in the bag was a notice instructing prisoners on bail about how to apply for legal aid. After the discovery of the bag, it did not take long for P.C. Walker and Sergeant Snowley to find Mary. Her body, which was laying on the opposite side of the tracks, was described in the papers as mutilated. And at the inquest, Dr. K.M. Fox said that, based on her injuries, Mary would have died instantly. On the bridge at Church Road, P.C. Walker located five scratch marks which he assessed to have been consistent with someone having climbed over the wall. When he examined the train at Reading, he found signs of blood and flesh on it. Following her death, the local news was quick to pick up on the incident, saying that Mary must have been spurred into action and perhaps suffering temporary insanity brought on by the thought of bringing disgrace on her family. Shaw, the papers claimed, was all a figment of her imagination, made up to explain the reason why she would break into someone else's house. At the inquest, police would talk about their search for John Shaw, saying that, Despite detectives visiting cafes, restaurants and hotels throughout the area around Maidenhead and Romsey, no trace could be found of him. They said, Mary's description of Shaw is such an extraordinary one, and the name such an easy name to remember, that we feel as if we should have found him by now. Despite the police's doubts, Mary's parents believed that she had been murdered by Shaw. They claimed that between 4:30 when Mary left Raymond's in Maidenhead and the train passing below Church Road Bridge sometime after 5:45 was not long enough for their daughter, who had only a little money on her person, to walk the 11 miles between the two. Ida Woolley told the inquest that she and Mary had previously had a conversation about hypnotism, and she said that she told Mary, I thought it was something one must not dabble with. I wonder now if I had been a bit more sympathetic about it if I might have found out that this man had some hypnotic influence over her. To the Woolies, it seemed obvious that on that Monday, Mary had been taken to the bridge by John Shaw, and there either forced over or coerced into climbing over herself. Speaking about this idea, the coroner, Mr. W.C. West said, I don't say that it was this illusory man, but someone else must have given her a lift. There was nothing to prevent anybody coming along and tipping the girl over. It would not take two minutes. He was keen to point out, though, that he was not presenting this as fact, going on to add, whether this man is a real man or not, we don't know. A girl of a decent family does not go off of the rails like this. I'm inclined to believe that there was someone leading her into this. She had to have a car to get to these places. The girl presumably had little money and was found 12 miles away. As the inquest concluded, the jury returned an open verdict. The foreman said that there was not enough evidence to show what happened to the girl. Following the inquest... The Reading Standard was forced to print a correction. It read, The report on Miss Woolley's death in our last issue was headlined Girl's Death Leap from Bridge. We wish to correct the wrong impression given by this headline and express our regret to the family. This is where I'm going to be leaving Mary Woolley's story. And I'm going to hand you over to Caprice from the Unseen podcast, who's going to talk you through a very unusual case from 1927.
1: The Brockstead family had lived in the south of England for decades, and by the time of Ruth Broxted's birth in 1909, her parents brought a rich past and interesting background to her own upbringing. Ruth's father, Richard William broxted had been born in Kiel in Germany on the 5th of June 1872 as Richard Wilhelm Brockstedt. At the time of his birth, the country was experiencing a huge amount of change as the Franco-Prussian War had started in 1870 and ended the following year. The war that was being fought between France and the Kingdom of Prussia had primarily been caused by a conflict over Prussia's perceived land grab of various states. France wanted to avoid a unified Germany, and therefore war became inevitable. This is what ultimately ended up happening, with Germany becoming a very powerful European power. This was to set the scene for 20th century European politics. After the war had ended, Wilhelm I became the first emperor of Germany and began to expand the naval empire that the country had. Kiel became a very important place for this as it was designated as an imperial war harbour and so thousands of people flocked to the city for work. It became one of the most populous cities in the state of Schleswig-Holstein. This was the world that Richard Brockstedt had been born into. His father, Christian William Brockstedt, was a builder. However, this was not the kind of life that Richard wanted to live in. He decided to leave Germany and make a new life for himself in the UK. By the time that Richard was in his late teens, he was already in the UK and forging a new and different career path. He was one of thousands of Germans that came over to the UK for a variety of different reasons. The UK had a greater freedom of speech than Germany at the time. Some people faced religious persecution and some agricultural workers were living in poverty and hoped that their job prospects would be better in the UK. Many people headed to London and its surrounding areas and many arrived with no job secured and no money. In 1891 Richard Brockstedt was in Brighton and looking at the census it seemed that he had fallen into a relatively good job. He was working as a servant at the Hotel Metropole at the Seaside Resort and interestingly the census shows that over half of the people working there were also from Germany. Hospitality would be his career for what appears to be the rest of his life. In 1894, Richard married a woman named Elizabeth Overton, but sadly this appeared to end in tragedy when Elizabeth passed away. By 1913, Richard was 41 years old and he seemed to get another shot at love when he married Gertrude Caton. The pair got married in Brighton that same year. Gertrude was born in Hackney in London in 1882 to parents William Henry and Jane Alice Caton. Her father worked as a rate collector and Gertrude grew up close to where she was born. In 1901 she was working as a clerk but by 1911 Gertrude had moved to Brighton and was working at a hotel as a wine dispenser servant. It was in Brighton two years later that she married Richard Broxtet. One thing that stood out when researching Ruth was that she had been born in 1909 and her mother hadn't married Richard Broxtet until 1913. It's unclear if Ruth was Richard's biological daughter or not, or whether he just took her on when he married Gertrude. It is clear that Ruth used Brocksted as her surname throughout her childhood and into adult life. She had, however, been born Ruth Gertrude Caton, and in 1911 when her mother was working at the hotel, Ruth is listed on the census as living with a nurse in Brighton. The Brocksted family moved back to London at some point after the marriage, as during the 1920s, Gertrude and Ruth can be found living in the Dalston area together. By 1927, Ruth was now 18 years old and was living at home and working as a clerk. In the reporting at the time, there are some differing addresses that have been given for where Ruth was living. However, the most common address in most newspapers was that she lived on Forest Road in Dalston. Her mother Gertrude had grown up in Dalston, so this would make sense. Dalston is now an area in the borough of Hackney in East London and has slowly evolved from a rural location to a more urban one. It's been known over the years, including during the 1920s and 30s, for its large Jewish population. By all accounts, Ruth was a responsible young girl who was working and living at home with her mother. A tragic event in April 1927 would completely upend this life and would raise many more questions. On Wednesday the 27th of April, Lillian White was out walking her dog in the area of Sunbury-on-Thames, a town located on the River Thames in the county of Surrey. Lillian was walking close to a field in the town when she noticed that her dog was behaving strangely. The dog began growling through a nearby hedge. Lillian decided to investigate and looked through the hedge at what the dog could see. When she looked through, she noticed a young woman lay completely still in the field. The scene looked odd to Lillian and she decided to go and get someone who might be able to investigate it a little better. The station sergeant was called out to take a look and he quickly realised that Lillian had discovered the body of a young woman. She was completely motionless and was found to be deceased. The discovery was shocking for the area and wasn't one that officers regularly came across. The scene appeared just perplexing. The young woman lay with one hand clutching a small bottle and the other hand was up to her mouth and she seemed to be holding two handkerchiefs in it. There didn't appear to be any obvious signs of violence or any real evidence pointing to how the woman had died. Close to the woman's body, officers found a book, More Not At Night. This book was found to be a collection of unusual and strange and mysterious stories. As well as this, there was an empty bottle and a handbag that contained three halfpence. The scene was certainly strange, and there were many questions that needed answers. Who was this woman, and what had happened to her? It would turn out that a clue would come from a fellow police officer in Sunbury. PC Carr recognised the woman as someone that he had spoken to the previous night in the town. The woman had asked him to direct her to the towpath. P.C. Carr explained to her that there was no towpath on the side of the river that they were on and that she'd need to cross over. As she walked away, P.C. Carr said that he noticed that it looked as though walking was difficult for her, as though she was injured. He did add, though, that she didn't look as though she was in any distress. This sighting indicated that whatever had happened to this woman may have happened between that time and when she was discovered the next day. It didn't take long for the woman to be identified as 18-year-old Ruth Brockstead. Police immediately went to speak to Gertrude Brockstead, Ruth's mother, to try and understand what could have happened to her and where she had been. Gertrude explained that Ruth had left the house on the morning of Tuesday the 26th of April to go to work and she hadn't returned since. This wasn't like Ruth, and Gertrude wasn't sure why she didn't return to the house that night. She told police that she'd left the house wearing a blue dress trimmed with blue and gold, a felt hat, brown strapped shoes and a brown coat with fur cuffs. When Gertrude was informed that her daughter had been found deceased in Sombrian on thames she was devastated, but also confused. She told police that Ruth had no connections at all to the area and no relatives that lived there. The town is now around 43 miles from Dalston where it's reported that her and her mother lived. This would also have been different in 1927, but in either the past or present, this was a relatively long journey to go on with no reason. There was also something else strange that Gertrude told police. She had since found out that Ruth hadn't actually been to work on either the Monday or the Tuesday that week, and when she headed out on that Tuesday morning, she hadn't attended work as her mother assumed she was doing. The potential next sighting of her was in sumbry thames by PC Carr. By this point, he reported that she looked like she had an injury to her leg. What had happened in that time and how had she arrived in sombry thames Ruth's body was sent to be analysed by experts in an effort to find out her cause of death and hopefully shed some light on what had happened to her. The analyst, Dr John Murray Scott, decided to send off Ruth's stomach contents to be further analysed. An inquest was launched into Ruth's death with evidence presented to the court. Dr. Murray Scott explained to the court that when the stomach contents had been analysed, something of interest had been found. There was evidence in Ruth's stomach that she had swallowed what looked to be a corrosive poison. It was later established that the poison was oxalic acid. Oxalic acid is a potentially corrosive and dangerous substance when it touches skin for prolonged periods of time or is ingested in large amounts. Today it's used as a cleaning agent and gets rust off items, but it's also naturally occurring in some foods and plants such as rhubarb. This was an alarming discovery but did explain why there were no outward signs of injury. Dr. Murray Scott went on to explain that from his estimates he believed that Ruth had died just after midnight on the Tuesday evening. It was certainly a strange set of circumstances given that Ruth had also been found with a book of uncanny stories documenting strange and mysterious events, some of them poisonings. The question was still hanging in the air what had happened to her in those hours after leaving her home and what had brought her to sunbury thames The coroner questioned Ruth's mother Gertrude about her background and lifestyle. Gertrude told him that Ruth hadn't been very well recently, but that there was no financial trouble or anything that could have caused her to run away from her life. The coroner asked if she believed that Ruth was capable of committing suicide. Gertrude responded that her daughter was strong-minded. The idea that Ruth may have poisoned herself was clearly on the minds of the investigators, given that there was no evidence of where the poison was procured, or any real evidence that anyone else was involved. The evidence was presented, and on the 8th of May, the coroner gave his verdict. He had ruled an open verdict, meaning that the evidence couldn't establish Ruth's manner of death, but that the cause of death was due to oxalic poisoning. This left Ruth's loved ones in limbo about her death, with so many unanswered questions still plaguing them. Ruth's case has stayed with this open verdict since 1927, and nothing else has been discovered about her death since then. As the years passed, Ruth's death has been more and more forgotten, but the strange circumstances have continued to baffle those that read about them. Ruth wasn't the only person to disappear during that same month. Many of the reports discuss another missing woman, Elsie Arterac. Elsie also lived and worked in London and worked as a milliner or a hatmaker. The newspaper report stated that Elsie was a partner in a millinery business in Pimlico in London and that she always appeared happy with little worries. The business was going well and her friends didn't seem to know of any problems that she was having. Despite this, Elsie just vanished one day in April 1927. She had left the house and posted her keys through the door with a note that said, if I'm not back by 1pm, leave the keys with Madam. It seemed as though Elsie had just popped out but had simply just not returned. She was 38 years old at this point and was a partner in a business. She was a reliable person and so this was very strange for her and out of character. So when Ruth Brockstedt also went missing, her disappearance was mentioned along with Elsie's. The main connection, however, that the newspapers made was that both Ruth and Elsie enjoyed mystery and detective stories, given that Ruth had been found with the book of uncanny stories. This is a tentative link between the two cases and seems to imply a link between enjoying detective stories and becoming the victim of a crime. The strange thing about Elsie's case is that her disappearance seems to have been solved and Elsie was found. Records show Elsie living in London after this point and even getting married. It's heartening that Elsie was found, however it leaves us with the mystery of where did she go and what happened. Like Ruth's case, the newspaper reports alluded to the fact that Elsie may have been, quote, depressed. However, we may never know what happened, given that the newspapers simply stopped reporting on her disappearance. In Ruth's case, her family tried to move past what had happened to her and the devastating effect that this had on them. This would clearly have been an extremely difficult task and her death would never have left their minds. Gertrude and Richard Brockstead continued to live in London after Ruth's death and they both appear in records during World War II on alien internee records. These records were issued to people who were either of German descent or were married into a German family. During the war at this time, some German families were put into internment camps due to violence and prejudice that they were facing, but also as a matter of national security, given that at that time, they were seen as the enemy. On Richard's record, it's stated that he's not seen as a threat, as he had been in the country for 50 years at that point and Gertrude was a British citizen who was simply married to a German man. These records really do give an insight into the terrifying world that people lived in during this time, and the fact that everyone could potentially be seen as a threat. Gertrude died in 1962, and Richard died in 1946, without knowing what happened to Ruth, and the sad fact is, we still don't know. There are so many unanswered questions, like why did Ruth not attend work on Monday or Tuesday? Why did she travel to Sunbury on Thames when she didn't appear to know anyone there? Where did she get the oxalic acid from, and why did she ingest it? How had the injury to her leg happened? Ruth's case brings up many questions, but also important things to consider. Mental health was not always thought of during the 1920s as it is today, and if Ruth had decided to take her own life, this may not have been something that her family wanted to talk about. If she hadn't taken her own life, how had she ingested the poison, and who wanted to harm her? These are questions that unfortunately we cannot answer, but do make this case all the more mysterious. I hope
0: you enjoyed listening to these two quite unusual stories. What's following now is Caprice and I having a chat about the two cases and a little bit about our working method and the way in which we come by our information. So it's something a little bit different, but I hope you enjoy it. Okay, right. Shall we start by talking about Ruth Broxted and about your process of researching it?
1: Yeah, so with Ruth Brockstead, obviously like a lot of cases that, you know, me and you both cover, there was very, very limited information that was available even in the newspapers at the time. And the, the information that was in the newspapers at the time was also very contradictory. So like, I know that you'd found information about where she'd lived that was different than information that I could find. So it was just trying to read between the lines really and with her one of the things that i did was to go back on um ancestry and look at her look at her family look to see obviously there's lots of records out there that can help like the the london electoral rolls all that kind of thing could gave me the idea that you know she was living in dalston which is what you discovered um, and not at the other address that was listed in one of the newspapers. So obviously the newspapers are not always correct. So using things like ancestry to go back into the family history is always good because you can't rely on just one one source either. And the ancestry information also gave me a better picture of her because in, you know, it's nice to get a picture of the person. And a lot of the records that are out there about Ruth Brocksted don't really say anything about her. You know, the only information you find out is that she worked as a typist and that she was living with a mother, but you know, what was she like as a person? What had happened beforehand? You know, how had she grown up? All that information, you know, you just can't find out there, There's, there's just nothing. So with Ancestry, I was at least able to find out that a bit more about her mother, um, and you know, who she'd married. She'd married Richard Bruxstead, who'd come over from Germany uh, and they'd met in Brighton. And then that's where they'd got married and then they'd moved back to Dalston and that was where they were living. So Ancestry gave me that kind of new information that I wouldn't have been able to find. I don't know if you, where you kind of got some of yours from as well that might, that helped you.
0: What I tend to do is, so like you, I, I'll i read through the newspaper articles.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, as you were saying, like some of the information doesn't seem right or it contradicts itself. And that's when I'll then go back into Ancestry and try to verify what I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I tend to just like, I'll start with a name not even necessarily the name of the person who's the main point of the research. Like sometimes it would be their mum if you have the first name there, and then you go back and you find the marriage records and you can sort of start to put a picture together, especially with really old cases. It's quite good because there's so much, like the electoral rolls, there's so much information out there that you can mm-hmm. find. Um, what I thought is was interesting about yours is then how you can look at that you can get certain bits of information. You can t- start to contextualise the people.
1: Yeah, that's that's the thing. You can start to see why, you know, they did certain things, why they moved to certain places, you know, why those kind of things were happening. Because with Ruth Brockstedt's family, you know, he'd moved over from Germany. And when you looked at the 1911 census, you know, he was working at Hotel Metropole in Brighton. And when you looked at the rest of the census, they were just all Germans, So you could see that obviously they either, you know, thought, oh, this is a good place to move to, or they'd employed a lot of German people who were coming over from Germany. So it was quite interesting to see, it was obviously a little community that they had there. Um, And then you can kind of see from the other side that Gertrude had also gone, uh, Ruth's mother had also gone into that kind of industry as well. You know, she was working as a wine dispenser. So they were all kind of working in this hotel community and then that's obviously where they'd met. So you can put together that that's, that's how their life was at the time and you can start to imagine it. But if you just went off the pure facts that you find in the newspaper, they're very cold and that's it. You know, you, you can't imagine the people, you can't... And obviously all that's important when a crime happens. You've got to think, like, how were they living? What was happening to them? What What made them... Do the things that they did so all that's important and if you can't find that it's very difficult and with these older unsolved cases often if people don't have the information they're not as motivated to learn more about them either you know if you can't imagine them as as people
0: one thing that really interested me about ruth Brookstead's case was just on that point it was the fact that she was found with the book of mystery stories next to her because it gives you a really interesting insight into her character when there was very little kind of actually you know no one had bothered doing the research into what she was like particularly Uh, and so that's that's quite interesting I thought I think
1: it was how they presented it as well it was you know she was found with this mysterious you know book of stories and it you know it was probably just what interested her and to them, to people at the time, it may have been a bit odd that that's what she was found with, you know, a bit, a bit eerie. But obviously, like you say, it gives gives us an idea of what her personality was like, you know, what she was interested in, which is quite nice because you don't often kind of get that.
0: Did you uh, get the sense from reading the articles that people thought it was unusual for a woman to be reading a book like that?
1: Yeah, I did, and as we know, women love mysteries and crime and all that kind of thing they love reading about that you know it's it's become a kind of not a running joke but it's become a bit of a thing that women like true crime and and mysteries so it's a bit yeah i got the feeling that it was seen as a bit strange and you know yeah definitely
0: yeah it's it's interesting how that's kind of evolved i think like a Mm. sort of you know the love of mystery stories and detective stories uh the i mean because it's obvious that it doesn't matter whether you're male or female if you're interested in that you're interested in that yeah but still then as now there's it's kind of um it becomes a phenomena that women will be interested in yeah. these kind of subjects and unlike when men are interested in these kinds of subjects what i find interesting is that um there's this sort of desire to get to the bottom of why a woman would like that
1: yeah, we're saying it points to her character as in she's interested in it, but I think for them it was kind of pointing to a character as in, well, is this a reason why she, you know, we found, you know, sh- she's been found this way, you know, is it to do with her love of of mysteries and you know, as if that's part of why she died, you know, I think it was made a lot bigger possibly than it than it was.
0: Did you manage to find the book at all?
1: no couldn't find it did you did you find it
0: i yeah i um, did actually um oh. but it's not they are really was, not it call, that. was it called was it
1: called back cuz i know in the newspaper when i tried to search it it didn't come straight up so i was like was it actually did it have another name or
0: no it was more not at night i think yeah uh, which is what Uncanny, you'd found
1: yeah.
0: uh it was like an anthology that yeah, okay had been put together by uh, a woman who it turns out was quite a famous uh, sort of compiler of horror stories uh, or at the time was, but it was the second one. So I think there was one called Not at Night,
1: Ah, if I remember
0: right. Right. And then More Not at Night was the second volume of them. Um, But yeah, they were all sort of like, I know in the newspapers, it mentioned that there was one about was it poisoning or something to do with uh, that kind of topic? Mm-hmm. But then, when you actually uh, look at the books, they're sort of, you know, it'll be like a sea serpent.
1: <laughs> that no. kind
0: of they're not they're not a sort of generic detective mystery. They're more sort of horror and mystery, no. which maybe didn't fit in with the newspapers. Um,
1: yeah, because kind of. it's not like it was an unusual thing for people to write about. I mean, we had Agatha Christie and, you know, all of these kind of things. It's not like it was unusual that someone would be writing a story where poison might have happened. And obviously in older cases, you know, there's cases in the like 1860s, 70s, 80s, where poisonings happened. So it's not like it's it was an unknown thing to people at the time this one though I'd never heard of um, oxalic acid I had to have a I had to research but it's just like a cleaning cleaning agent and it can get like rust off things but it's also found in like rhubarb and other fruits and uh, leaves and things aren't isn't it so i would never heard of that one before to be fair.
0: No, I hadn't either. Although now I don't think I can properly look at rhubarb in the same way again. Yeah,
1: I didn't realise that kind of thing came from rhubarb, so it's a bit, bit scary.
0: Well, yeah, rust cleaner and also delicious in the crumble.
1: Yeah, very, uh, very different. Very nobody kind of tells you that kind of thing, but I suppose they won't. Will they? They don't want you to know what you can get poison out of.
0: <laughs> no, that's very true. It's in the yes. same way that no one will tell you how to. Um, make gunpowder it's just not the kind of thing you should no no so um tell me then after you'd sort of finished what what do you think happened with Ruth
1: the one thing after I'd researched everything and I'd written it the one thing that all I could think was there's a lot that's been unsaid there's a lot of things that I don't think we've been told about um, for instance, when the coroner asked Ruth's mother, "Do you think she would have committed suicide?" and her answer was, "Well, she was strong-minded." Uh, it was yeah. just a bit of an unusual comment, just, and so I thought, "Well, I feel like there's something behind that that hasn't been hasn't been said." You know, so you think she she might have done? Were there issues? But mom, her, his mom, her mum said. No, there, there was no financial issues. There was nobody, nothing to do with love, you know, any partners or anybody on the scene that could have had a, an influence on her, apparently. Um, it seems like she pretended to go to work Monday, Tuesday, didn't tell her anything about where she was going, and then on the Tuesday just disappeared to Sunbury on Thames, which is where she was found where she has no connection to according to her mother you know nobody mm-hmm. no relatives no anybody there and is seen by a police officer walking down asking where the the towpath was and then that's the last time we see her until she's found in the field so it there's obviously something going on that she's not telling anybody about and what that mm-hmm. is is had to pin down is it was it a secret that she had or was she you know was she struggling with a mental health was something happening did she commit suicide there's so many questions because we also don't know where the poison came from it's ended up in a system but we don't know how it was administered either so I just think there's a lot th- there's things that possibly Either people were a bit too embarrassed to mention, or just didn't didn't want to to tell people about that is going to stop us from knowing really what happened. I don't know yeah. if you felt the same way. Or uh, yeah, I
0: mean, I think you're always aware with um, cases from around that time and later in the one I covered as well with Mary mm-hmm. Willie is that people like mental illness is still very much a taboo subject then. Yeah, And it is very difficult to know whether or not if uh, she had decided to commit suicide, whether that would kind of be something that they would have sort of tried to avoid having to say, you know, like in the inquest, is there a sort of element of them going, well, we can't be entirely sure where she got the poison from. So maybe she didn't hmm and well, then yeah, they
1: leave it open don't they so
0: mm. it it's okay? sort of it feels like a get-out doesn't it it's mm. quite a neat way of avoiding having to kind of look at those things and the same with what you were saying about her mum kind of going oh well she was very strong-willed you know obviously yeah. if she'd decided she wanted to do something like that
1: just a bit of a yeah you you d- she didn't really give an answer it's very well she was strong she was strong-minded so and then it kind of leaves it hanging you know Mm -hmm. does that mean yes you think she would have done or or you know because you know something was going on or you know if she was going to say no she most probably would have said no wouldn't she you know it's also there's just too many questions about it because you know why didn't she go to work for two days where where was she for those, for that Monday. And, you know, we know she then went to Sunbury on Thames. How did she get there? You know, we, we don't know any of those things. You know, was she alone all that time? Or was there somebody out there who could have maybe answered these questions, but was just never asked?
0: So this is it with things like her not turning up for work for a couple of days, you know, was that something she did regularly? And mm. it was just never reported on. There's so many frustrating gaps in Mm -hmm. the story and no way of really kind of finding an answer for them.
1: I don't, like I said, I don't know whether it's because people weren't asked, which is a huge shame, you know, was it just, well, we don't know what's happened. So we're just going to leave it open and give an open verdict and just kind of move on. Um, But if they'd have dug deeper, would they have found some of these answers? Well, it's, it's an
0: interesting um, phenomena, I think, whereby uh, people kind of enjoy the mystery. And maybe if you dig a little deeper, that then goes. So it's like, I don't think you mention it in the episode, but the other woman who went missing at the same time
1: mm-hmm. as
0: Ruth, uh, who I don't know if you looked into her at all.
1: I think I do mention her briefly. Oh,
0: do you? Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know when. But it
1: it was hard because, like we talked about previously, Elsie Alterac she seems to pop back up on, yeah, well, on records, but there's no mention of whether they found her. I'm, there's no mention in newspapers again of whether she was found or what happened afterwards.
0: I um, what I thought was interesting about that is that there's quite a lot of coverage on Elsie Alterac's. Uh, disappearance and then it just suddenly stops and when I was reading it I wondered if actually they'd found out what happened to her and it wasn't very newsworthy so it didn't because as um, as I was saying to you before I find her married down south by uh, the 30s so
1: and it's a very unusual name so Hmm. we're you're gonna have we're gonna have to assume that it is the same
0: She, um, I think I validated it because uh, this is actually going back to how you research things and how you try to make sure you got the information correct. She had an aunt who I could trace to her mum who lived in the same place that she ended up living, I -hmm. believe. So you could be pretty certain that it was her.
1: Right. Because yeah.
0: there are, especially, I mean, not with her name, but when it's common names, it can be really easy to just find the wrong person. Find and, the
1: wrong one, yeah.
0: Um, but I think as we do research, I feel like we have to be quite creative with the mm-hmm. ways we go about it, especially with old cases. It's It can be very uh, difficult to know where to begin otherwise.
1: Yeah, and sometimes I find with the older ones I I change around how I write it. So sometimes you know if I've got more information, I probably do start with a certain. I might start with where they were, what the life was like, and and sometimes like in this one we don't have that. Like we didn't, we know where, but in Ruth Brockstead's case, she wasn't she was found somewhere where she didn't live or you know have any connections to. So it's how you kind of bring that back to well, this is what her life was like. And then obviously we don't know what she was like. So you you do have to move around, don't you, how you would normally write it?
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: Um, it's
0: There's certainly uh, like a formula that you follow. And in an ideal world, you have everything that perfectly kind of fits that formula and it can all just slot together into a nice episode. But actually uh, there's something quite satisfying about the challenging ones Mm -hmm. where you don't have all of that.
1: Sometimes they can be the best, the best mm. ones, you know, you because you've spent a lot longer on fitting it together and making it coherent. And it's quite nice that, you know, when you've put it together, yours might be the only one out there where you've, someone's actually bothered to do that. I don't know about you, but sometimes if you Google a case that you've covered and nobody else has covered it, you know, yours is one of the only ones up there that's even talking about that person. So that's quite nice when you've, actually put this person's story together yeah
0: um i think with the with the older ones definitely like there isn't as much unless it's a really famous case for some Mm. reason there just isn't information out there a lot of the time or it'll be uh two lines on website that deals with uh unsolved cases
1: yeah
0: and that will be it um Mm so you do you do become um, almost like a biographer of that person and what happened to yeah. them when you're when you're doing that
1: research you become quite connected to them don't you really because you've you've spent a long time doing that did you find with mary woolley's case that you had more information or was that also limited
0: there was slightly more but it was all very much um, I didn't have any more biographical information really Mm. and actually hers was quite hard to come by other than what was in the paper and then Mm. uh, kind of going through Ancestry to back that up Um, but with hers obviously because not only do you have information about the burglary and this mystery John Shaw man yes uh, but you then also have what happened to her afterwards? How did she end up on the railway lines? Um yeah. so there was there was slightly more kind of body to the newspaper articles, but it still wasn't masses, yeah. and there was still a lot of uh, sifting through the stuff that I didn't think was accurate. Um there's one one example was I think one of the articles said, she'd been living with her brother for a week. And then another article says that her brother at the inquest said that she'd been living with him for six weeks. Um, and so then you're like, ah, which one is it? And in the end, I've gone with the inquest because I think that was directly reported and it seemed to have the rest of the facts right. Yeah, But again, like even something where there is a little bit more coverage, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything matches up.
1: No, sometimes it can actually make it worse because I think, you know, it's like anything when you Google anything. Everything will have their own kind of spin on it, won't they? And some of them will just get completely... I mean, even recent ones, when I've looked at those, sometimes those facts aren't correct and they might have happened, you know, last year or something. So can't really rely on it, can you? But hers was very mysterious. Like, there's lots of mysteries with Mary Woolley. She was a very elusive elusive woman wasn't she
0: yeah um the idea of this mystery man was absolutely fascinating um because uh, they just couldn't find him but i don't think you know her parents believed she'd been murdered they thought this man had something to do with it And so I get the impression she wasn't the kind of uh, young woman who would make up stories like that. Mm. But then also reading between the lines, it sounds as if she'd been having a bit of a hard time. Um, Obviously she'd left, she'd been a student nurse and she'd left because of uh, what's referred to as ill health. Mm -hmm. which is a really frustratingly vague term yeah um and she'd had a couple of jobs before that i think as well and you know she was she was definitely in a kind of period of transition Mm -hmm. um and then along comes this supposed mystery man and encourages her into bad behavior and I guess the, the question I kind of found myself asking was why would she have made him up? Like, why, if if she had made him up because of the burglary, why did she not just keep quiet, not tell anyone that she'd broken it? Because she'd only got into the house. She hadn't taken anything.
1: Mm.
0: You know, how how big an attack of conscience did she need to have there that she would make up a whole person to explain her actions?
1: Yeah it's a bit it's a bit like you know I I don't know it is a real (laughs) mystery because it's why would she make up a person you know you'd have you have to do a lot to make up somebody you have to you know come up with a a big backstory and what happened you know it's not just one lie, is it there's a lot more to it so why did she like you say why did she feel the need to do that?
0: Mm, I'm if if it was just as simple as you know she thought she'd burgle this shop well she could have just kept quiet or she could have claimed she did it on her own because the end result would have been the same either way mm. and instead yeah there just is no need to make up a whole person um and she was never, yeah, it was never going to kind of benefit her to do so, especially you know. when he then couldn't be found.
1: <laughs> no, and that's you know nobody fit in that description with that name could be could be found. I mean, how far do you think they searched <clears throat> for this for this man? You know,
0: well, because they said that. The police said that they conducted quite a thorough search around Maidenhead, but then I read another article that said that he wasn't from Maidenhead. He was from Southampton, maybe. I think she'd met him in Southampton on the day that they went to Burgle, the bungalow. Um, And so you sort of think, well, maybe the police were looking in the wrong place, or they perhaps because of the way that she died, they assumed that it had been suicide. And then that influenced how hard they were willing to look for this man.
1: Yeah. And the fact she met him on the day and then they decided to go and burgle somewhere is very, well, she'd, so she, apparently she had
0: met him before she'd been um, he'd been driving around Maidenhead and they'd met each other uh-huh. Um But yeah, on the day she traveled from Maidenhead to Shurfield English, told her mum that she was going to see a friend in Middlesex, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then she'd apparently gone to meet him. Uh, One article said it was in Southampton. The other said it was in Shurfield English. Either way, that's where they end up um, when they then go to burgle the bungalow and shop. Uh, And the whole thing is just it's so odd if she wasn't being encouraged by someone else to do it, you know, what, what was going on that would lead her to that? And then, you know, if there was something else going on, would it then be the same thing that might uh, lead her to take her own life?
1: Yeah. Uh, the thing, I think, are they connected or are they completely separate incidents? You know, you've know, got to be inclined to think that obviously they are connected because they've happened just, you know, one's happened before the other and they seem to be both be out of character for her. But in what way then are they connected? Are they connected by just her? You know, are they connected by something that was going on with her that we're not aware of, or, you know, her parents might not have been aware of, or are they connected by this mystery, John Shaw? Are they in, are they connected by him coming onto the scene or just by something going on with? with Mary Woolley Mm,
0: because her mum speaks about the idea of hypnotism and saying oh she she you know maybe John Shaw was hypnotizing her into it and I can only imagine that she really wasn't the type of person who'd do that sort of stuff if her mum would assume she'd been hypnotized Mm
1: -hmm. yeah very yeah very out of of what she'd normally do out of the norm
0: yeah. Um, if something is so out, I mean, not that people don't do things that are massively out of character and not that people don't lead very rich lives that their parents have no idea about, but at the same time, you know, you can't, you can't look past the fact necessarily that her mum was incredibly surprised that she'd have done it. Mm. Um, and it was shocking. Um, I think, a, the inquest the they say oh she was a nice girl from a nice family doesn't do something like this it was similar to that um and that's that was kind of interesting to me because you that's something you hear a lot as well isn't it like
1: yeah
0: it all you know she wasn't the type she came from a nice middle-class family
1: yeah like it could possibly happen you've got to remember that both her and Ruth Brockstead, you know, they were 18. Mm. So when you're 18, you don't make the best decision. You know, even in 1927 and in the 1950s, you don't make the best. And now, you know, you, you don't always mm. make the best decisions and your parents don't always know every single thing about you as well.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, were she to have burgled the bungalow on her own, like I, I still don't understand why that then would lead to her killing herself. Her, oh. her mum was obviously relatively understanding, especially because she thought that this mystery man was involved. Mm-hmm. So then, how does she, how that leads into her, you know, ending up on a bridge eleven miles away from Maidenhead? I have no idea.
1: No, because even if she, as we'd said, she'd made up the fact that she, that John Shaw had helped her, you know, commit, you know, do do this burglary. And she told her mom, it was, oh no, it wasn't me. It It was him. He was telling me to do it. That would make sense if she then wasn't found where she was found, you know, and she hadn't died. You know, she was trying to kind of cover it up. But like you say, how then does that lead to the, to the, other you know how does that lead to her committing suicide or ending up where she you know where she did yeah you you sort of feel like
0: you know she was living with her brother she was probably on relatively good terms with her family if there was something else going on they would have been aware of it Mm. um but there is absolutely nothing that kind of puts all these things together and says, well, of course, she attempted to burglar a bungalow, got caught or not even got caught, handed herself in and then killed herself. You know, it's there's quite a lot of uh, leaps of faith you have to take there to get to that conclusion from mm-hmm. where it starts. So it's a really fascinating case because, you know, the other option is that perhaps she did get, pushed over the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the policeman who found her body and who'd uh, looked around the crime scene said that he'd found scratch marks on the bridge consistent mm-hmm. with someone having climbed over. And I couldn't quite work out how you would leave scratch marks on a bridge if you were just climbing over it.
1: And when I And When I saw that as well, I thought, is it just convenient? <clears throat> is it just that he saw some marks that were already on the bridge and just... In his mind, knowing what had happened, in hindsight, oh well, this is probably <clears throat> where she went over the top, you know. But how do you, if someone pushed you over, you wouldn't really leave that many. You wouldn't leave that many traces, surely. You know, she's not going to leave. She's not gouged bits out of the bridge on the way down.
0: It reminded me, if if it were her who'd left the fingerprints, it reminded me of when people try to commit suicide and then change their mind midway through Mm, and they try to grab on to something. But then, you know, again, like it would be impossible to say, oh, these scratch marks are caused by her grabbing on because she didn't, she decided against committing suicide and these scratch marks are caused by her grabbing on because someone's pushed her over.
1: I suppose it depends what the scratch marks are. You know, he's saying scratch marks, are they, are they just superficial marks that have just been left on the bridge or are they... And when did they find these? Did they find them immediately or was it sometime after? Or, you know, hmm. you don't know, do you? So it's and it said something about there was I mean, this is quite, you know, not gory, but, you know, there was blood and flesh on top of the of the train, wasn't they?
0: They they found. Yeah, they found blood and flesh on the train.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I don't think it said on the top of the train specifically.
1: Just on the train.
0: Yeah um mm-hmm. as if it had hit her but then also they said she died instantly and i couldn't work out if she died instantly from going over the bridge or if she died instantly from going in front of the train In front
1: of the train yeah
0: um there's a lot it was a very sort of vague sounding inquest
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: really um but I know ham-
1: w- a handbag went and then she went
0: well, you mm. add to that the fact that she'd uh, laid the table for coffee mm. before she'd gone. Yeah. You know, either she was someone who was very much prone to acting on a whim mm. or, you know, something else has happened there. I don't think with um, with Ruth Brooksteads, I think there's um, there's a fairly good argument to say that she'd tried to kill herself or she was trying to kill herself. And then in this case, I think it's there's a much more vague argument. It, it doesn't it doesn't quite fit together in the same way.
1: No, with Ruth, you've you know you've got that she did disappear for those on that Monday. She didn't go to work. She then just disappeared on the Tuesday and was at least seen in the area alone walking down looking for a towpath. And with an injury, that was a bit strange as well. That the policeman said she was kind of limping, and it, but he he said she didn't seem like she was in distress. But well, she's walking alone at night, clearly with an injury to one of her legs, mm. which isn't mentioned anywhere else that she had this injury beforehand. So that's also a bit, a bit that- strange.
0: Was the policeman, did he say that at the inquest? Was that where that came yeah. from with the limping? So you can be relatively sure that that's what he saw yeah.
1: then. Because he said he, he. I think he went to the scene and he said he recognised her as somebody he'd seen the night before limping and, and asking where the towpath was.
0: So strange.
1: Yeah. So where had that injury come from? You know, but with her, like we're saying, at least there was there was some events kind of leading up to her being found. Whereas with Mary Woolley, yes, you have the the burglary element, but there isn't really a connection, in not much of one anyway, really, to how she was then found. You know, also
0: um, with Mary Woolley, it all happens very quickly. They try to burgle the bungalow on the Saturday. She hands herself into the police on the Sunday, and by the Monday she's dead. Um, And it just, it's such a, like, it's a very odd weekend, isn't it? (laughs) You know, it's... Yeah, I I can't, I, I just can't see things you know, escalating that far inside her head. And somebody who's uh, willing to burgle somewhere is probably not the same kind of person who's then willing to kill themselves a day or two later.
1: No, and you'd, you'd think you'd have seen, or someone would have seen these types of behaviours before this weekend. Wouldn't just all happen in one go.
0: Yeah, I. her mum said, oh, she owed a bit of money. Uh, for a suit that she'd bought, but then there was no—you know, there was there was nothing about her mental state that wasn't just. Oh, she'd left her student nursing position. There was, and I don't know if that could just be her family trying to kind of downplay it, or not. There, it's so frustrating. Cases like these. <laughs> I did. Uh, I did have a go at trying to find this John Shaw guy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but he's he's got too common a name (laughs) yeah um and not only that but you can't be 100 percent sure that was his name or any of his biographical details I had a little look for uh freelance artists around the Maidenhead area in the 1950s Mm -hmm. and found very little um I also had a look for freelance artists around Southampton in the 1950s and found very little um so he's like he's a real mystery if he does exist he's completely mysterious
1: and people moved around. <clears throat> you know people do move around a lot you know we say moved around a lot like it only happened you know in the past but if you actually tracked people and saw where they went you know people do move around a lot so trying to find and locate this person this many years later is you know really difficult and you know we've got To assume then that he helped, he tried to help burgle a place, then murdered someone and then just disappeared into, just vanished into the crowds. you know, vanished back into the public.
0: I I, I think that um, judging from what was said at the inquest, they sort of believed he existed, Mm -hmm. uh, but they didn't believe anything about him. Um, except for maybe the physical description and even then I think they thought that might be a bit romanticized
1: yeah Um, something about he was quite he was very tall and he was wasn't he and they were trying to find
0: dark mysterious yeah I think was the was the kind of description which Mm -hmm. isn't hugely helpful although i didn't necessarily agree that um they said oh that's too generic i think or something similar and i didn't necessarily agree that that's a particularly generic description of someone um, because she she had given quite a lot of detail including what she thought he did for a living Mm -hmm. Um, and i don't know whether you know they said oh it's, it's a very common name as well you know, very easily made up. And it was difficult to tell whether they thought he'd made the name up
1: or if they thought she'd made the name up. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we're going to think that he was involved, then let's look at it that way, that they tried to burgle the place on Saturday. She then hands herself into police and he obviously probably, you know, he may not have wanted her to hand herself into police and tell him what happened. And then on the Monday they meet up, they have an argument, he pushes her over the bridge. Is that...
0: Well, then also, so she's on the Monday, she's in Maidenhead, she's at her brother's collecting her stuff. She's 11 miles away. And not only that, but this, you know, it's the 1950s. So mm. how does he know she's there? Mm-hmm. Um, It's, you know, it's it's... Probably not like she just rang him up and was like, "You coming to Maidenhead? You know, I'll uh, I'll see you tomorrow if you'd like." And he's gone. Oh, lovely opportunity to murder her. But then also, she was too far away. Uh, she so that she was eleven miles away. Um, she went down to make the coffee at about four thirty. The train was the five forty-five, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't have taken that long before. It was passing underneath the bridge, so then, did she have time to walk eleven miles Hmm. to then kill herself? Because that was the other mystery for them: was how did she travel that distance in a short space of time?
1: And why did she make? Why did she set everything up to make coffee if that was her plan?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, why not It kind of seems like something
1: out? was interrupted. You know, if, you've, if you're if you in the middle of making something, but then if you are interrupted, do you take your handbag out with you? She had a handbag with her. So if someone was just, say, at the door or they've just turned up at the house, would she have then taken a handbag out with her? So
0: I wonder then, because her mum said she thought she'd just popped out to get milk from the dairy, mm. I... The alternative is that, you know, he, uh, John Shaw liked to drive around Maidenhead. So maybe she has actually nipped out to go and get milk from the dairy. And Mm -hmm. as she's walking there, he's passed her and said, I'll get in the car. Mm -hmm. And then they've argued or whatever, because obviously when her body was found, it was in no condition to... Um, assess whether or not she'd had any injuries prior to being hit by the train. Mm-hmm. So it would have been very difficult to know whether or not there had been an altercation before she went off the bridge.
1: I feel like that. Not, you know, not, I'm not saying that's speci- that's specifically what's happened, but I feel like that makes more sense than she set everything up for coffee. She'd handed herself into police. She'd done all these things and then gone out to commit suicide.
0: My apologies for the abrupt ending to the recording. If you'd like to catch the full uncut version, you can do so over on Patreon. I hope you enjoyed this special collaborative episode. Be sure to check out Unseen if you haven't. I'd like to take a moment to say thank you to my new and returning patrons, including... Jodie Hightower, Debbie Rummans, Haley Tilly, Vanessa Meachin, Christopher Mays, Moira Kirkland, and Sophia. If you're interested in signing up, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. I've just finished a three-part look at a fascinating historic solved case from Great Yarmouth, which I'd love for you to check out. Plus, this month, you'll get bonus video from the chat between Caprice and I. As always, thank you all so much for listening. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.